If you found Mark chapter 9, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. Mark chapter 9, come down the page with me to verse 38. Verse 38 to verse 41 is where I'll read Uh, next Sunday. I've split it up. Next Sunday, verse 42 to the end, is Jesus himself talking about hell. If you want to hear about hell, come next Sunday. Be from what? It's probably not a good commercial. I'm working on it yet, but... Be here next Sunday for that, but this Sunday we'll start in verse 38, and we'll read to verse 41. Grass with us and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. You join me as we pray. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you will help your people, that you will strengthen. God, we ask that you would strengthen our hearts, that you would strengthen our minds, that you would give us discernment and compassion. God, give us a heart for the gospel, sustain us this year, so that we get to the end of the year, we can say it was a hard year, but by God's grace, the Lord saw us through, just like you did this last year. I pray that today would be a day of stepping toward that. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. A lot of you in this room today are on the social media called Facebook. A lot of, I know that because I see your pictures. A lot of you have posted pictures over Christmas, and it's good to see families, all your travel. You know, for all the negative things that you might could say about social media, and there are legion, lots of negative things you could say. But for all the negative things you might would say about social media, one of the positives is actually seeing everybody's family, seeing all the pictures, seeing the travel, seeing uh, the fathers that were finally talked into actually putting on Christmas pajamas and having their picture made that we'll be praying for later on in the service. (laughs) Another feature that I like about Facebook is the memories portion. Memories that shows up the day, what you were doing this day a year ago or two years ago or five or ten years ago, 15 years ago. The sad thing for me is that um, I, I'm doing the same things. Like I, it shows up, I'm, I did the exact same thing on the exact day two years ago. And all my pictures are of either a truck that I want or saw or have or a dog or a book that I'm reading or lifting weights. It seems like I do the, just the boring, there are four things I do, and there they are. Nothing changes. But if you're like me and you look at the pictures, you find out that uh, although you might be doing the same things over and over again, there are some changes. You have changed over time. I can look at my own picture showing up from five years ago or ten years ago and more and more gray showing up in my beard and in my hair. Like, what are you people doing to me? 
For sometimes, uh, Kyler will show up in my pictures. I mean, he's been with us a long time now, and there was uh, a lot more Kyler to love back then, 10 years ago. <laughs> you, <laughs> you don't feel yourself changing. You don't feel yourself changing day to day, but you, you can see it over the course of time. Now, what is true for us in the memory section of Facebook is true for the disciples during the 50-odd years that the New Testament gives us a description of their life. And this morning, we have a little strange picture in verse 38. This morning, we have a little strange snapshot of some of the disciples, one in particular, his name is John, and that picture is not a flattering one. Now, we've been away from Mark for some time. Let's back up and get a running start in chapter 9. I won't back all the way up. I'll just back up in chapter 9. Chapter 9 opens up with a glorious event. It's a transfiguration. You can read it there. Peter and James and John go up on the mountain with Jesus, and there he is changed in front of them. They are changed as they see Jesus like they have never seen him. They come down the mountain to a little bit of a melee that's going on at the bottom of the mountain. There's a problem that the disciples that were left at the bottom of the mountain couldn't cast out this demon. So Jesus gives them some instructions about that. After that discussion, they are going through Capernaum and the disciples, the 12 of them, are talking about which one of them is actually the greatest among the disciples. And then you get to this passage. This passage has a picture of John as being narrow and, and cliquish. It's just a snapshot. It's not his whole life. It's just a snapshot but it's there. Now, if we were to take that picture of John in verse 38 as the only picture we have of the Apostle John, and that's all we knew of him, our opinion of him would be very low. But we know from the rest of the Bible and church history, we know that John and the rest of these disciples, except Judas, they went on to be used tremendously by God. They lived faithfully. Many of them died gloriously. They are now in eternity. And my thought this week is, what happened in John's life in particular, and really all of them, what happened to actually create change? I think this passage gives us the first steps of being useful to God, useful for the gospel. And today, at the beginning of the year, this is the first Sunday, 2024, at the beginning of the year, I want to use this passage to help, help us set a course for the next 52 weeks and hopefully for the rest of your life. So that in 2024, in fact, I'll make this the sermon theme. 2024, we need, we need disciplined minds and willing hearts. Disciplined minds. Disciplined minds and willing hearts. Now, there's a lot you could see here in this passage from verse 38 all the way to verse 50. I've split it up. But just a couple of things I want to point out. Let's begin with the most basic. Here's the first one. Number one, we need discipleship. Discipleship. Look, if you could just, if you could just make up your mind right now, if you could just make up your mind right now that you actually need to grow as a Christian this year, and if you could see the God-given opportunity that has been given to you 
at this church at Hickory Grove at this time in history with all of the resources. And you can feel the energy of what's going on in verse 38. Let me show you where I get it. Join me there in verse 38. Let me read it and come back and talk about it a bit. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. A couple of things to point out. This is the first time, only time, that Mark ever takes the spotlight and he puts it just on the apostle John. Why did he do that? And because he did that, I feel like we should look at John as well. He puts the spotlight on John, and it is not a flattering picture. You see the scene in verse 38. The scene is that John and the disciples came up on this man. We don't know his name. This other disciple, he's casting out demons, but he's not doing it like a magic trick. He's not doing it in his own power. He's casting out demons in the name and the authority of Jesus, and he is evidently doing it successfully, but he was not part of the twelve. He was not in their small group. He's obviously a, he's obviously a believer. Maybe he was one from Luke chapter 10 when Jesus sent out the 72. Remember that? Maybe he was one of those, but it seems like John would have known, or at least by sight, some of those guys. Those guys had been given authority to cast out demons, to preach. We don't know who he is, verse 38. All we know is that he is a believer. He is on the same team. But according to John, he don't want him on his team. John tried to stop him, verse 38. That's what he told Jesus. We tried to stop him. Why did he try to stop him? Verse 38 tells us he tried to stop the man because he is not one of us. Now I want to take a close look at that. That seems odd to me. I want to take a closer look at John and his character. I want to take a closer look at John, his character, his motives, and compare who he is right here with with what we know will become of the Apostle John. The man named John who will write the Gospel of John, it's so poetic, who will write 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, those little books packed with the love of God and loving one another. John will write the book of Revelation, how Jesus will show himself. How did he become that man from this man? What do we know about that? How did he grow into the how did he grow into the title the beloved disciple? I mean, here in verse 38, we find him narrow and cliquish and judgmental. We find him resenting success. Remember earlier in chapter 9, the disciples tried to cast out a demon, they couldn't. Now this no-name guy is doing it. Here's this stranger Now, let's think then, what do we know about John? The Bible's given us lots of evidence about John. We know several things about him. We know that he and his brother James, uh, they are called the sons of thunder. Sons of thunder. Now, that, that was their, you don't get the title sons of thunder because you like to catch butterflies. Right, I mean, you you had you got to do something. You have some kind of attitude. The people have said, "Oh, they're sons of thunder." Not only that, uh, they argued about who would be the greatest, and John was right in the middle of arguing about who will be the greatest. Or you get to the end of his own gospel. John tells us that his mother, maybe he got this from his mom, his mother went to Jesus and asked Jesus, "When you come into your kingdom, 
Make sure that James is on the left side and John is on the right. Or, or in Luke chapter 9, in Luke chapter 9, verse 54, the disciples, Jesus, are walking through Samaria and they're preaching, reaching the Samaritans. The Samaritans are rejecting what they're saying. And instead of having a heart of compassion, John says to Jesus, let's call down hellfire on these people. Now, that's the kind of man he is. Now, how did he go from being that person? What did God use in John's life, starting from here? What did, what did God use in John's life to get him out of the, the cage stage of, of belief? Cage stage, when you get a hold of truth, some truth you hadn't heard before, you wonder, why didn't I know this truth? And then you think everybody that doesn't have this truth, they're all going to hell. That's sort of the attitude that John had. How did he come out of this and become the beloved disciple? I'd like to offer up a couple of suggestions from his life that, that might be helpful for you and for me. What's in front of John from chapter 9? What, what's, what's down the road for him? Well, one thing that's down the road is the cross of Jesus. John will have to go to the cross. There he'll... Watch Jesus, the one he loves, Jesus, die on the cross in his place. There he'll see the gore, the pain, the suffering of Jesus on the cross. It's good for us to think about the cross. One of the things that will temper your attitude and help your disposition is when you think on the cross. John was there to see it with his own eyes. John saw the resurrected Jesus John witnessed the ascending Jesus, but it would always be the cross that changed him. Not only that, John will get a hold of the, he didn't have it here yet. John will get a hold of the gospel of grace. Do you understand the word grace? Do you understand that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Bible alone, and it's for the glory of God alone. John will come to understand grace, that he didn't do anything to get this. He didn't earn it, that God gives it to him in Jesus. John will, John will be captivated by the Word, the Bible. You read John's writing, you go to the Gospel of John, you can see all of the Old Testament coming through the Gospel of John. You can hear it in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. You can see the prophecies in Revelation that he would be captivated by the Word of God. John will spend all of his life, after the resurrection, John will spend his life in the church, in the fellowship of believers. God has given us the church. What for? To give glory to him, and it's good for you. Why people will ever not be a part of the church? Out of the church, God makes disciples. Out of the church, God calls missionaries. It is the church. It is the body of Christ. On the Lord's Day, gathering together. The most important thing you do during your week is show up on a Sunday with the church. The church then lives its life in a community, pointing to Christ. John will be captivated by the church. He'll spend his life on the island of Patmos, and what he will miss on the island of Patmos is the church. You know what else God used in John's life? He's used it in your life. That's hard you can, you can call them hard providences. Hard providence. That, 
When I call it hard providence, I mean you've been through a tragedy, something hurt. It, it wasn't outside of the hand of God, the movement of God, even the plan of God. We call that providence. It's a hard providence. God uses that. The pain and the hurt and tragedy, He does that to soften, to, to humble, to teach us patience, to, to understand and extend grace to people. For your own discipleship this year, what is God going to use? For your own discipleship, I want you to love the gospel, to run to the gospel, to understand the gospel, to put your faith in the gospel of Jesus, to apply the gospel to every part of your life. I want you to think deeply about grace. What did it take to save you? How has God sustained you? What is it that He is doing in you? To think about grace, to to give your life to the Word of God? It's not enough. What we do here on Sunday is so important. Gathering together is so important. It's not going to be enough for your own growth if you just have the Word read to you and preached to you on Sunday and you don't interact with it during the week. You need a meal during the week. To grow in grace will be to have your life saturated in the Word of God. In the church. Man, I'm so thankful for the students and college students and the leaders that God has given us here at Hickory Grove that are pouring their lives into the church, the, the ministry of the church, the growth of the church, the strength, and how the church will be where you grow as a Christian. When we look at 2024, we, some of us, all of us, I'm sure at some point, have something terrible on the way. We don't have to dread it, though. We understand that in the providence of God, even a hard providence is used by God for us. I'm reading a book right now uh, called Character Matters. And it's written by a pastor, four pastors. And I've forgotten the guy's name, but it's been really good for me this week to read it. And he, he says we live in the, the nevertheless, the nevertheless, nevertheless. He got that from when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's asking the Father to remove this cup, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. That's where we live. That's part of our discipleship. We need discipleship. Let me give you something else to consider. You'll find it in verse 39. Number two, we need discernment. Discernment. We need to be able to tell. One from the other. Let me show where I get that. In verse 38, they tried to stop this stranger from casting out a demon. John did. We want to stop him. He's not with us. Now look at the rebuke that Jesus gives them in verse 39. There are three rebukes. They all begin with the, the word for in English. Verse 39, verse 40, verse 41. Read verse 39. Look at the rebuke. Join me there. But Jesus said, do not stop him. Here's the why. For. Here's the rebuke. No one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Now, John and the disciples, they had, by this time, an unnecessarily narrow view of the work and the kingdom of God. As a rule now, as a rule, we want to be careful. We don't want to be more restrictive than Moses. And, and we don't want to be any more broad-minded than Paul. What we want is to have 
discerning minds, especially in the days to come, as the, as the days we live in continue to get evil, we need to be able to tell one from the other. We need to be know what is true, know what is, what is true, what is false, what is good for our souls, what is bad for our souls. And Jesus gives a bit of a de- description or at least a prescription in verse 39. This is what he says. <clears throat> you just follow. Let me sort of expand on it as we read it. Verse 39. Jesus says, No one who is filled with the Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a triune God, no one who is filled with the Spirit and does a mighty work, Remember, what we understand about miracles is that there are no miracle workers. Only God is the miracle worker. He does the work through people. No one who is filled with the Spirit and does a mighty work. That word mighty work is the Greek word dunamis, where we get dynamite. This powerful work. No one who is filled with the Spirit does a mighty work in my name or by my authority or by or with my blessings. No one who does that will soon speak evil of me. Because the Spirit is in them, you see. Remember, the work is God's work. It is God working in someone. And if God is working in that someone, and that someone is giving glory to Christ, then He is with us. The same Spirit. The same Spirit that makes some sort of ministry or work possible, according to verse, what Jesus is saying. The same Spirit that makes this work possible, will give the words to speak to, or let me say it another way. The same Spirit of God that is in Him doing a miraculous work is working a legitimate saving faith in Him so that He will utter, Jesus is Lord. That's what Paul says, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, Paul says, therefore, I want you to understand, no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says that Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So, okay, what do we do? January of 2024, the world like it is, we're trying to make our way, we want to use our minds, what do we do? We appreciate and embrace authentic ministry, When we find it, we appreciate and embrace authentic ministry when we find it on the same team. We want to make sure we are not more narrow minded than Jesus. On the other side, we distance ourselves from heresy. When we see something that is not orthodox, it's not biblical, that is off the rails, we distance ourselves from heresy when we find it. But to do that, we need discernment, which, which, which drives me to this third point. To have discernment, we need the third point. Number three, we need good doctrine. Good doctrine. Good doctrine of the sides of the riverbanks that keep the river flowing. Without the sides of the riverbank, that river becomes a pond. We need good doctrine. In verse 40, Jesus gives the second reason. The second reason that the twelve should not oppose the man casting out demons and doing so in Jesus' name. Now let me read it to you. Verse 40, it's a proverbial statement. He says it a different way 
over in Matthew. I'll show that to you. So here it said positively, Matthew it said negatively. It's a proverbial statement that is saying more than it appears at first glance. Here Jesus himself divides up the world into two camps. He's going to go into detail about hell next week. But here he says there are those with us, those against us. I'm going to read it, verse 40. For the one who is not against us is for us. So that can be misunderstood, especially in our day and time. The one who is not against us is for us. If somebody is not throwing rocks at us when we preach the gospel, they are not against us, they are for us. That is not what this means. This can be misunderstood if we don't use something else Jesus said. Think of it as two sides of one coin. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30 he sometimes, sometimes said a negative way makes it clearer. Jesus said this, same thing, Matthew 12, verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. You understand it's the same coin. It's just a different side of that coin. And so, so what is Jesus saying with either one of these proverbial statements? Jesus is saying that there is no neutrality with him. There is no fence sitting. There is no one foot in the world, one foot in Christ. There is no mediocrity. There is no claiming to be a Christian yet not living. There is no saying you're a part of a church and never being there. Jesus says you're here or you're here. Now, I think this is important because we need to be able to identify and know what it means to be a real Christian. So the question then for me, how do we know what Christianity is and what it is not. I think that's vital for us in the days ahead to have really good doctrine. A simple tool that I have found uh, very helpful in my own life and in discipleship, a great tool I first heard from Al Mohler, I think he may have come up with it, is something called theological triage. Theological triage. You can look it up sometime on the internet if you want. You can read a whole lot more about it. We don't want to, uh, with a theological triage, we don't want to be more narrow-minded than Jesus, but we do want to have good doctrine so that we might build our lives on that. So let's think with me about theological triage. Triage helps us to see what is essential and what is non-essential. There are three levels, first-order doctrine, second-order doctrine, third-order doctrine. Let's talk about first-order doctrines in the theological triage. In the first order doctrine, that is what we must believe to be considered a Christian. First order doctrine. What do you have to believe? Well, you have to believe in the deity of Christ, the full deity of Christ. There it is. The full deity of Christ. Believe in the full humanity of Christ. First order doctrine would be the the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You have to believe that to actually be a Christian. Uh, justification by faith alone, that you didn't do anything to earn your salvation, that 
You are saved by God's grace through faith alone. The authority of the scripture that the Bible is the infallible, inerrant word of God. And when the Bible is read, it is God who speaks. Those are things necessary to be a Christian. They are first order doctrine. Think of, uh, think of the Apostles' Creed. That's a good summary of first order doctrine. To deny any of those is to actually deny being a Christian. There are second order doctrines, though. Second order doctrines are what divide denominations. Might be something like baptism. We believe, as Baptists, we believe that the right order of baptism is after salvation and the right mode of baptism is by immersion. We believe that's how Jesus baptized and was baptized. We believe that's the way you're supposed to do it. However, we would recognize that there are people who are faithful Christians who love the Bible and love Christ who believe that baptism is something that you do with infants. Take, for instance, uh, Christ's Covenant Presbyterian Church in Matthews. There, Kevin DeYoung is a friend of mine. I think the world of Kevin. I read most of everything that he writes. He is a great writer, great preacher, great theologian. We disagree on baptism. Recognize he's a wonderful Christian. We disagree to the point where we will be in different churches or different denominations. So something like baptism or the role of the Lord's Supper or, or gender roles in the church. D dynamic Christians can disagree here but will be in different churches or denominations. There are third order doctrines, though, that can be within the church. A third order doctrine is something like a matter of conscience. Or if you're in a community group and you read a difficult passage and someone has a different understanding of that passage than you, you can just say, well, we, we agree to disagree, but we are agreeable. Or when we think of the end times, how everything is going to end, what does Revelation mean? We can, people in the same church can hold differing third order doctrines, differing doctrines, but can worship together joyfully in the same place. And, and all of this good doctrine begins with what Jesus is saying right here. It begins with Him. It, it begins with what are we for and what, what are we against. Look, I want you to know the joy and security and forgiveness that comes in Christ when I talk about the gospel, it's a first-order doctrine. When we talk about God, here's the gospel. When God created us in His image, this holy God created us in His image, the image of God in us is disfigured. That disfigurement is sin. That sin separates us from God. Not only that, it's a crime against God. And the wrath of God is what we are due. It's what the Bible teaches. But the Bible also teaches that God in love gives us Jesus Christ. Jesus, being fully God and fully man, lived perfectly at the cross. He dies in the place of sinners as a substitute. He takes the wrath of God away so that the way you're saved is you believe Jesus died for you, lived for you, that he took the punishment and gives you his righteousness. And you put your faith in the righteousness of Christ, not your own, in the righteousness of Christ. That's how you are saved. That's how it begins. Look, we, we need disciplined minds, willing hearts. We need discipleship, 
We, we need discernment, being able to think through things. We, we need good doctrine so that it's robust. We have boundaries. But all of it has to go somewhere. That's in verse 41. I'll close with it. And we need devotion. Devotion. Verse 41, Jesus closes this section of instruction with one of those verily, verily statements or truly statements. And what's striking to me in verse 41 is the, the basic hospitality. Let me read it to you, verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. It's a simple, basic act of hospitality that is done because of the gospel of Jesus. You see, all this discipleship, all this discernment, all this doctrine, those are wonderful things that take us somewhere. They're not an end in themselves. They take us to a life of devotion. They take us to a life that is played out, lived out in simple, everyday devotion to the Lord Jesus. That really does take a disciplined mind and a willing heart. As 2024 begins, it's a good time for us to commit our lives to discipleship that leads to devotion. This morning as we close, I'll invite you to join me in prayer. With your heads bowed this morning, maybe with your eyes closed before we sing another song. As we close today, let's reflect on where we are and what needs to change. For 2024 to be different, what needs to change? Your growth in the Lord, your time in the Word, your commitment to the church, your running from sin. What needs to change so that you grow 2024? God has given you something specific. You want a pastor to pray with you? When we sing, I'll invite you to come forward. If you've heard this this morning and you want to know what it means to actually give your life to Jesus, we want to talk further with you. We can do that as we sing, or you can wait till after church and meet one of the pastors in the lobby. Talk through what does it mean to give your life, to live your life 2024 for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the good word you've given us. We thank you for the joy that comes from knowing you through Jesus. We pray that you would find us faithful. We pray that you will use us this year. God, I pray that you would bring real comfort conviction that you would restore joy that this would be a year of growing in Christ we thank you for it in Jesus name we pray amen